Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This oracle from Isaiah does indeed give us something to hope for. Can you imagine a world in which God's justice, God's tangible administration of justice prevails? A world in which the nations willingly and enthusiastically give up their own authority to the God above. They submit themselves not to their own interests, but to the divine teaching. Can you imagine a reality in which all of the world's peoples find themselves ascending the mountain of the Lord, listening for God's instruction, and learning to walk in a new way, submitting themselves to change? Can you imagine a world in which weapons of war and tools of division are converted into the means by which our lives are actually cultivated? This is the uh, oracle of Isaiah. This world will change, says Isaiah. It will be transformed by the justice and by the teaching of the divine and by the cooperation of the nations and the people within them. Here's the really interesting part of this particular oracle, though. This oracle is not what we would call an eschatological oracle. This is not a prophecy for the end of times. This is not a prophecy for the end of days. Isaiah does have his share of prophecies about that great and wrathful day of the Lord, but this one is not one of those. This oracle is rather situated within the mundane reality of living in this very real world. Isaiah's timeline for this oracle is in the days to come, in the coming days. This leaves a lot of room for us to wonder which days exactly that prophet might have meant. So let's situate this oracle. Let's explore how this prophecy works within the larger body of Isaiah's work and within the context of what was happening within the world around Isaiah as Isaiah wrote and preached to the people. First, we'll look at this world. What was this world like that God needed to address through this prophet? In short, we can say that the world around Isaiah as he worked was a world that was rife with division. The nation that was established under King David and Solomon had long been divided. Instead of remaining united on one nation, the 12 tribes of Israel decided to divide. The northern kingdom called itself Israel, while the southern called itself Judah. And Israel and Judah, though they're major parts of our stories within our Bibles, on the grand stage of history were only bit players. They were small pieces along with a number of other small nations that were caught between the drama of the empires. Egypt was still holding on to its empire in the south, and Assyria was growing in power and strength to the north. As these two empires fought for control of land and divided their resources, Israel and Judah and these other small nations found themselves stuck in the middle of conflicts that they could not escape from. 
The northern kingdom of Israel eventually decided to ally itself with another small nation, a nation called Aram. They sought the support of Egypt in a rebellion against Assyria, and Assyria responded by completely destroying that northern kingdom. The people of Israel were deported, were made into refugees, and were lost to history. Their land was filled with deportees from other conquered peoples. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted just a touch longer. They vacillated between allegiance to Assyria and Egypt. For the most part, these kings of Judah thought that they could outmaneuver these empires and remain somewhat autonomous. And it worked for a time. Much of the behind the scenes conflict in this book of Isaiah has to do with this political maneuvering. The people of Israel, the people of Judah were divided. They were divided of which superpower to engage and which superpower to spurn. Isaiah, the prophet for the most part, urged the kings of Judah to stop trying to gain the backing of these larger empires. This, he said, as well as the corruption of these leaders would lead to disaster. And though it didn't happen in Isaiah's lifetime, Assyria did lead several campaigns into Judah, capturing and killing thousands of people. Somehow, Jerusalem stood. But just to complete the story, after Isaiah's death, these kings of Judah continued these practices. And eventually, it did lead to their destruction. The southern kingdom was overrun by the Babylonians, and the southern kingdom's people were sent into exile. It seems that this southern kingdom would have done well to heed the warnings of Isaiah. So this is the world in which Isaiah is writing. This is the world in which Isaiah preaches his message. As we come to the structure and the contents of this book that we have from Isaiah, we know that this is a world deep with the vision that he is approaching. The first six chapters... This prophetic book serves as an introduction to the book as a whole and especially to the first major portion of the book. And it is in these six chapters that this oracle this morning is situated. In these chapters, we find the birth of the major themes that are found throughout the text of Isaiah. We find in these chapters both the proclaimed condemnation of the oppressive practices of Judah and the surrounding nations and the proclaimed promises, promises of peace and restoration and redemption. After these introductory visions, Isaiah gives us a look at his own calling, at his own preparation for this vocation as prophet. If you set out to read this book of Isaiah, and you pick it up and you read this first chapter of the first introduction, of this introduction to Isaiah, you'll find that it is rather vicious. Isaiah opens with a chapter that asserts the crimes of those that presume to lead over Jerusalem. Here's just a little taste of what the prophet says. How this faithful city has become a prostitute. She that was full of justice, righteousness lodged within her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine is mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions to thieves. 
Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not defend the orphan and the widow's cause does not come before them. This chapter leaves little doubt as to the guilt of those in charge. They target the weak and they make themselves more strong. The political and religious leaders steal from those that they're tasked to care for. They create a system that preys on those they marginalize and controls who has access to justice and who has access to the divine. But it's interesting that immediately following this condemnation, we find our passage of hope and peace. It is the same Judah, the same Jerusalem that administers itself with corruption that receives the promise of the oracle that we read this morning. One of the commenters that I read this week naturally asked the question, how does the Jerusalem of chapter 1 become the Jerusalem of chapter 2? How does the nation of division, hypocrisy, and injustice become the nation of promise and peace and hope? I think this might give us a few questions to ask of ourselves today. Does Isaiah's world sound a little bit like our own? Does the political scheming sound familiar? Does the corruption and the oppression and the control and the violence sound familiar? A question that we might ask ourselves that might sting a little bit more is does Isaiah's world sound a little bit like our church? locally or universally. In this Advent season, I want to echo that this question that the commenter asked. How can this world that looks so much like the world of Isaiah 1 become the world of promise found in Isaiah 2? How can our church that's marred by division and marred by pain become again a beacon of hope. This oracle of Isaiah can help us discern an answer. The first part of this oracle that I want us to notice today is that the nations and the people decide to begin a journey. They say to themselves and to one another, come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord that he might teach us his ways and that we might walk in his paths. These people begin by making a pilgrimage, by intentionally seeking out the place in which they might be changed. The fact that they seek this teaching means that they're humble enough to understand that they still need it, that their walk might be made better with a new word. The second piece of this oracle that I want us to notice is God's action. The people come to the mounts of the God, and God responds in two ways. First, it says that God does indeed teach. Instruction, the Hebrew is Torah. Torah goes forth from Zion. The word of the Lord springs forth from Jerusalem. 
And second, it says that God judges. God judges the nations and arbitrates for many people. The words that are used here for judge and for arbitrate mean that God listens and God rules justly. The late Old Testament scholar Gene Tucker says this about these words. This is not the typical prophetic image of a God who administers punishment after establishing guilt. But this divine image, the divine image in this passage, is the one who settles disputes among nations, resolving their differences so that peace can be established and maintained. This is the God that settles disputes and resolves differences so that peace can be established and maintained. Here's what really caught my attention about this comment. It implies that the nations and the people still have their differences. The distinctions between one nation and another remain. The distinctions between one way of thinking and being in the world and another way of thinking and being in the world remain. Even under the arbitration of God, people still have to learn to compromise and to live together in the face of their differences. The final thing that I want us to notice about this passage is how these people once again respond. How they respond to this teaching and to this judgment. The first thing that they do is they beat their plows and their swords into plowshares. Under this divine justice, there is no need for the old ways of settling disputes. The people no longer need to resort to the means of violence and conflict and division. Not only does the conflict cease, but the tools that they use to wage war and to foster division become tools that cultivate growth. They cultivate life. And second, they respond by encouraging one another to continue the journey. Come, it says, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's our job to invite and to welcome, to encourage all those that we meet to join us on this journey of change. This word, Advent, it comes from the Latin word that means coming. This is a season in which we anticipate the coming of the divine into our own mundane reality. But it's also a season in which we seek out and we come to the mountain of the Lord. We await God's justice and we seek God's teaching. For those of us that are inspired by the words of the scripture, we find that the divine has already incarnated every bit of this world around us. And for those of us that follow Jesus the Christ, we know that the divine has already infiltrated our history. In some sense, we know that we are already living in those coming days, those days to come that Isaiah has talked about. All the nations are welcome to seek out this God of Israel. It's now our job to actually undertake the journey. It's ours to humbly realize that we do need more teaching, that our walk might still be improved. 
In some sense, though, we also know that those days are not quite here. The means of violence still wreak havoc on our world. Division still infiltrates our church. The chaos of our world today, much like the chaos of the world of Isaiah, persists, and sometimes we even contribute to it. And so in this season of Advent, we still do hope. We hope for those coming days. In the coming days of this particular Advent season, I have an invitation. I want to invite you into a pilgrimage. I want to encourage you to wander through this Advent season seeking out ways to change, seeking out ways to transform, seeking out ways to let the divine teach you what it is to love your neighbor in new ways. We are different. Even those of us that align most closely have differences of opinion, and it's abundantly clear that we don't all agree on the ways to organize ourselves, whether it's politically or it's here in this church. And because of this, the easiest response to this oracle, the easiest response to this text is a response of cynicism. A cynicism that says that such a vision, such a prophecy is not available. That in this world and in this place, such things do not and cannot happen. There are no days to come except for that real wrathful day of the Lord in which this oracle might finally prove itself to be true. But I do think that most of us are here Most of us are in this room because we do want to see this world transformed. We would like to see some of that chaos become shalom. And so let us take up this journey together. Let us seek to be changed. Let us beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and let our words and our actions give life rather than take it. And let us invite and encourage and welcome all those we meet to journey with us. Come, my friends. Let us walk in the light of the Lord.